Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. for a counselor. BetterHelp makes it easy for you to move your practice online and focus on what you love most, helping others. BetterHelp's easy-to-use platform takes care of referrals and billing and provides a secured platform to communicate with your clients. Join more than 18,000 therapists at BetterHelp, helping to improve people's mental health and lives. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on post-acute withdrawal syndrome, neurochemical causes and interventions. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're going to briefly review what post-acute withdrawal syndrome or PAUSE is, explore why it happens, and identify steps to take to reduce and cope with post-acute withdrawal symptom or PAUSE. Henceforth, I will probably just call it pause because that's a whole lot easier to say. Pause typically affects people who've been engaged in addictive behaviors. Now that can mean um, addictive substances, alcohol, opioids, LSD, you know, those sorts of things. It can also mean engaging in addictive behaviors or even prescription medication. If they've taken it for an extended period, there is a withdrawal period. And what we're talking about is a withdrawal. Um, they could may have been taking the prescription medication as directed, you know, and they didn't have an addiction, so to speak, but their body built up a tolerance to it. And they may have a reaction um, during that detoxification period or rebalancing period that is similar to what we see for pause in people who do have addictions. The effects of pause are based on a lot of factors. Your age, people who are younger, um, you know, especially 24 to, you know, 55 age tend to do a little bit better. People who are much younger, obviously, uh, we've talked before about how um, pause impacts the the brain of the adolescent. And so it is, a, has a stronger impact on the brain of the adolescent. So therefore their reaction, uh, during pause may also be similarly stronger. Older people, it takes them longer to clear things out of their system because as we age, our liver becomes less efficient at clearing things. Our metabolism slows. A lot of stuff happens, but we do know that, um, 
people who are older metabolize substances differently and it takes them longer to clear it from their system. Gender may also have an impact on the symptoms of pause and the duration of pause, partly um, because of actual gonadal hormones can impact the the way the body handles this um, time uh, and this rebalancing period. The length and the amount of use is going to affect pause. Someone who has been using for, you know, heavily for three months or so has done less damage than somebody who's been using heavily for 30 years. So, we do want to give a little, well, a lot of bit of leeway uh, when we're telling people how, when they ask, how long does this last? Well, uh, some, uh, the general rule is up to a year, but I have talked to some people who have had um, substance addiction issues that for an extended period of time, you know, more than a decade that have said that pause sometimes lasts, you know, even 18 months to two years for them. So we don't want to tell somebody that, you know, as soon as you pass that year mark, you're clear. Um, we do want to take into, a f uh, into account their physiological functioning, the duration of use, their physical health. You know, how well is their liver functioning? If they've got uh, alcoholic cirrhosis, obviously that liver is not going to be doing as well as somebody else. If they have autoimmune issues, if they have kidney problems, those all may make pause a little bit more um, intense and may make them last a little bit longer. And underlying mental health issues can also impact pause. For someone who has an underlying anxiety or depressive disorder, these symptoms can be exacerbated by the uh, changes in the neurochemicals and the hormone levels as the body tries to readjust. Pause begins after the acute withdrawal, after somebody has taken off the medications um, or the substances or they stop engaging in the addictive behavior that caused their body to develop a tolerance to the dopamine rushes. So pause begins after acute withdrawal and can last for up to a year. During pause, people may have memories of substance use or the addictive behavior um, because these things alter brain functioning uh, to promote drug-seeking behavior and irritability when blocked from goal achievement. So when people are in this period and, you know, it's longer than early recovery, it's, you know, like I said, for a lot of people, at least a year while their brain is rebalancing, where their body is becoming less uh, or reducing their tolerance to that substance, as well as reducing their reducing its tolerance to things like norepinephrine and dopamine, which also surge when we engage in addictive behaviors. So because of the use of something that triggers a, um, a strong dopamine reaction, a strong endorphin reaction, as well as just the chemical itself. Um, people may have memories. It actually causes our brain to rewire itself. Cocaine, amphetamines, and alcohol 
uh, all three of these, you know, cocaine and amphetamines are stimulants. Alcohol, when we first ingest it, is a depressant, but it as it leaves our system, uh, our system actually can't replace the calming uh, effects of alcohol quickly enough, so we start to feel the glutamate effects of alcohol. Alcohol does increase glutamate, or our, one of our stress hormone levels. So cocaine, amphetamines, and alcohol reduce the uptake of dopamine, increase glutamate, and in high concentrations, um, inhibit monoamine oxidase A, which, you know, the old, old-fashioned psychotropic meds, the um, MAOI inhibitors that uh, we wanted to look at. Um, So when people are using... uh, Dopamine, now remember, reuptake, when something's reuptaken, when something's sucked up out of the synaptic space is not being used anymore. So these substances actually cause dopamine to sit in that synaptic space more, so it has a more intense reaction. Um, Alcohol reduces glutamate's excitatory effect on the NMDA receptors and increases dopamine. Co-administration of nicotine and alcohol increase alcohol's rewarding effects. So we've got a couple of things going on here. You know, we've got somebody ingesting a substance that by all rights triggers a triggers the stress response. We're taking in a toxin of some sort. It triggers the stress response. Since it's a stimulant, it triggers glutamate, norepinephrine, dopamine. All of these things also uh, trigger the release of endorphins. Um, That's part of the stress reaction. Remember, when we're under acute stress, our body wants us to feel no pain and to have no inflammation so we can fight or flee. So during this period, um, the body may have higher levels of endorphins. As we become tolerant to those substances, uh, as our tissues become tolerant to the substances, it becomes harder to, quote, feel normal when we are operating on the average level that our body produces. We start becoming dependent upon those surges from exogenous administration. Nicotine stimulates the dopamine and reward center and is responsible for mood elevation and apparent improvement in cognitive function. Now, there is some interesting uh, data out there about how nicotine does have some cognitive enhancing effects. Not that I am promoting the use of nicotine by any means because it is an extremely addictive substance. But it is interesting. Think about people you know who um, are trying to stop using substances, are trying to stop using certain addictive behaviors, who are who smoke when they're having difficulty concentrating and they're trying to calm down and get focused. Well, apparently nicotine actually can help with that a little bit. Chronic stimula- stimulation by nicotine of uh, cause the GABAergic neurons, our calming neurons, to become desensitized and lose their inhibitory effect on dopamine, which reinforces the addiction by inducing craving. So GABA, when, we, when people use nicotine, 
um, it stimulates GABA. And GABA is our relaxation chemical. So they use it. They're able to relax, help kind of calm that monkey mind, focus a little bit better. But under chronic stimulation, nicotine loses its ability to do this. So when people smoke, they don't have or use nicotine, however they're getting it, they don't have that same calming effect, um, which also by that same action, uh, causes the body to not be able to suppress dopamine. Um, so they, so the person starts craving, uh, craving nicotine. Opioids act on the opioid receptors. They activate serotonin and dopamine. Benzodiazepines activate GABA and serotonin, um, in people. Now, benzodiazepines, remember, are your anti-anxiety medications. So all of these substances, what is my point here? All of these substances get in and they start monkeying with our body's ability to respond appropriately to endogenous levels of neurochemicals, endogenous levels of these substances. So we're causing surges that are unnatural. In chronic substance use, the brain comes to rely on the drug to maintain the high degree of pleasure associated with the artificially elevated levels of some neurotransmitters in its reward circuits. The brain can even adapt to these high neurotransmitter levels by making new receptors. Okay, so not only do tissues become tolerant and they start saying, you know what, uh, I can't allow that much through, but they also start forming new receptors to try to handle the flood. Basically, think about, um, you know, if you've had a lot of rain and normally the channels that you use, you know, your, your gutters on your house, move that rain away very efficiently. But if it's been raining and raining and raining for days or you have this deluge of rain, um, maybe the, the gutters get overwhelmed. So not saying that you're going to do it, but maybe you decide, well, you know, I really need to divert the water so it's not so overwhelming. So I'm going to form uh, new downspouts off of all of my gutters. And basically the brain is forming these new receptors uh, in order to accommodate the surges of neurotransmitters. Okay, so this is an analogy that we're going to try. People have said it kind of makes sense, um, so we're going to try it again. Think of your body as a factory. Um, in a factory, think of dopamine like one of the raw materials to make your product, which we're going to call happiness or high or rush. We're just going to call it happiness. Normally, dopamine is on, on auto shipment. A steady regular supply so the, so the factory can produce a steady supply of happiness. You know, every Monday, the little, you know, worker bees go and they pick up the, the delivery of dopamine and they can make happiness all week. That's, you know, obviously not how it works, but just stay with me here. The manager sees a deal on dopamine and wants to increase his department's revenue really quickly so he can get a promotion. So he triples the auto shipment. You know, he says, okay, instead of delivering 100 boxes of dopamine, I want 300 boxes. And, you know, that's akin to taking uh, cocaine or a substance that increases um, 
dopamine levels. Initially, the workers are able to keep up, but this frenzied pace starts causing them to be exhausted and call out sick. This is when tolerance develops and they start saying, you know what, I can't handle all, I can't handle all 300 boxes coming in this way. You know, I was good with 100, but 300 is just too much. It's overwhelming and you need to send some of it back. To deal with this excess, the factory hires new workers and creates a new assembly line. So that's your brain adapting and saying, okay, you know, you can only handle 100. That's fine. Then we'll create two other departments. We'll create um, additional neurons um, and receptors in order to handle this flood of stuff. Well, great. The manager, he's, you know, they think he's great and he gets this promotion and he says, okay, you know, we can go back down to the normal thing. You don't need to bust your hump anymore and go back down to the normal. When he reduces the auto shipments back down to normal, you know, he created those two other departments. There's nothing for them to do. And the factory starts losing money. So this is akin to us feeling depressed. The, the body gets used to having those 300 boxes coming in. And now we're back down to the normal one box. And you've got all these other receptors going, um, I'm not doing anything. I'm bored. To balance the budget, the manager either has to increase the shipments again, which be, would be akin to taking the drug or engaging in the addictive behavior again, or fire the new workers and close down their departments, which is akin to allowing the brain to heal. You know, you're saying, okay, you know, we really just don't need you guys anymore. We're going to go back to our normal 100 boxes a day and our original department. Uh, so you can think of, use that analogy when you're kind of thinking about tolerance, when you're trying to explain uh, tolerance to people. When we become tolerant of something, we need we start needing those 300 boxes to keep going, to stay profitable, to stay happy. And um, if you cut back down to the typical amount, then, you know, th then it causes problems. So what are the symptoms of post-acute withdrawal? As I go through each one of these symptoms, I want you to think, what are some of the things that would cause this symptom? What are the effects of each of these symptoms on recovery? And what might be two ways that we can deal with these symptoms or help clients deal with these symptoms? So I'm going to read through them quickly, then we'll go back through them one by one. Post-acute withdrawal symptoms include emotional outbursts or just lack of emotion, being flat, apathetic, anxiety and irritability, depression and anhedonia, difficulty dealing with stress, fatigue, having a hard time sleeping, strange dreams and changes in sleep patterns, memory problems that make it hard to learn new things, trouble thinking clearly, making decisions and solving problems, dizziness and problems with balance and delayed reflexes. Okay, so let's think really quickly about some of our major neurotransmitters and what they do. Serotonin is implicated in emotional regulation, anxiety, depression, um, stress tolerance, energy levels, 
sleep. We need serotonin to help us regulate sleep. Um, We need serotonin to make melatonin that helps us get to sleep. Uh, Memory problems, serotonin's involved. Thinking clearly, making decisions, solving problems. Well, when we have low serotonin, we have difficulty with these things. Um, And actually, because serotonin's also involved in managing or helping to manage our uh, heart rate and our blood pressure, it's not uncommon when serotonin levels are out of balance for people to have physiological symptoms like dizziness and difficulty with balance. The same thing can be said. Uh, so when people are, let me go back, when people are using substances, it generally increases dopamine. It generally alters levels of serotonin. It generally alters levels of uh, norepinephrine and endocannabinoids and um, glutamate. So if they're taking stimulants, then it increases the levels of those. If they're taking um, depressants or hypnotics, it typically increases the levels of your more calming neurotransmitters. But when they quit taking it, guess what? The, their opposite is, seems to be intensified. So when somebody quits taking, for example, um, an anti-anxiety medication, you know, they are, have been exogenously, artificially inflating the activity of their GABA receptors. When they quit taking that, then the activity of their, their glutamate, which had been raised to accommodate the extra GABA and and keep it in balance, well, the GABA goes away, but the glutamate stays raised. That's one of the cool things and one of the frustrating things about our brain and our body. No matter what we do, it wants to maintain that yin and yang balance. So if we increase the, the level of GABA in our system, our body is going to increase the level of glutamate eventually to kind of match that, to keep it in balance. Because it says, no, you're not supposed to have 10 times the amount of GABA as you are glutamate. So I'm going to return it to normal balance, which is, you know, protective. But then if you quit taking that exogenous substance or quit doing whatever it is that's increasing the GABA, it takes a while for the brain to get the message and reduce the glutamate levels. Another thing that we see, we have talked, um, well, in in a lot of my other videos I've talked, and you're probably aware that dopamine is very intimately involved in the development of addictive behaviors. Now, dopamine is not your pleasure chemical. Dopamine is your motivation and perseveration chemical. But when dopamine goes up, serotonin goes up, and uh, endogenous opioids goes up. So that's where your pleasure comes from. Um, dopamine just says, whatever it was, I want to do it again because I want more of those opioids and serotonin. Uh, when people are in, in detox, when they're experiencing post-acute withdrawal, they may go through periods as their brain rebalances, as those, some of those excess uh, receptors get pruned back, um, as their body becomes less tolerant uh, to the substance, 
Um, and this can come in fits and spurts. So there may be times when there are emotional outbursts or just lack of emotion because the body's trying to rebalance everything. Uh, there also may be explanations for the emotional outbursts or lack of emotion because addictive behaviors, whether it is gambling, sex, drugs, um, addictive behaviors put a huge strain on your stress response system or your HPA axis. And when that system gets out of balance, then you may be more likely to experience emotional dysregulation where you, the person may be, may feel flat you know, most of the time, you know, they're just not getting enough dopamine and stuff to really feel happy. But then when they're triggered, they have an exaggerated reaction. They have a stronger than expected reaction. And that is a normal symptom of HPA axis dysregulation, which again occurs uh, because of stress, because of trauma, but also because of the stress induced from addictive substances and behaviors. Anxiety and depression are generally more associated with serotonin, but norepinephrine and dopamine are also implicated in mood regulation. So with any addictive behavior, since dopamine is one of those things that we know has been monkeyed with, um, it is going to, the levels of dopamine are going to directly impact the levels of uh, serotonin and norepinephrine. Fatigue. Um, if you've worked with clients who are on atypical antipsychotics or antipsychotics, these are drugs that directly affect the levels of dopamine. When you reduce dopamine levels, people get sleepy. Dopamine is hugely intertwined with our energy system. Sleep um, is partially um, impacted impacted by dopamine, but serotonin is really our, our big bugaboo for sleep here. But the changes in sleep patterns may also happen because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the brain while we sleep. And if that brain is trying to repair itself, it can cause interesting, you know, connections and synapses to fire off. Memory problems, dopamine, norepinephrine are two of your main uh, chemicals involved in learning, memory, and attention. Well, we know in addiction, those are highly activated during the addiction and during the withdrawal process, they are insufficient, that the person feels like they have insufficient levels to think clearly, make decisions, and solve problems. And, you know, dizziness, again, can be attributed to alterations in, in neurotransmitters. So what do we do about these things? We can't just wish them away for people. You know, I wish, wish we could, but we can't. Uh, so it's, it's important for us to help them ident learn about all of the symptoms of post-acute withdrawal, to understand why it's happening and that there is an end to it in most cases. Now, in some cases, when there's been significant brain damage, when there's, you know, alcoholic-related dementia, other things, there may be some enduring effects. But most of the time, the brain is able to largely recover. It just takes some time. We need to provide them tools to 
figure out how to handle all of this stuff. And this is true as well for somebody, for example, who's been on opioids uh, because of a car accident or surgeries or something, and they may have ended up on opioids for a long period of time. And then for some reason, they're coming off of them right now. Um, I know when I worked um, in Florida, one of our units uh, was specifically soldiers and every single one of them was on long-term opioid prescriptions. I don't know if that is the same way now, but it was that way back then. So if for some reason they needed to come off, even though they weren't addicted, they weren't experiencing addiction in the behavioral sense, their body had developed a tolerance to it. So they may experience a lot of these symptoms. And it's important that we put... Um, uh, we, we inform them about this and help them figure out tools to deal with it. How can they handle stress? You know, in, in addiction recovery, we encourage people to not make any major decisions for the first 12 months. Well, part of that is because of pause. Their brain is still recovering um, and they've got a lot of other stuff going on in their life. Uh, but helping them recognize that this time may be exceptionally stressful and it may, they may get triggered easily. So what can they do to reduce their stress as much as possible? We want to talk about environments. You know, what can you do to make your environment as calming and relaxing and safe feeling as possible? What can you do for time management? What can you do for personal care so you don't get run down and burned out? What strategies can you use to handle emotional dysregulation? And that changes for each person. Um, help them complete a sleep hygiene inventory and talk with them about uh, their sleep patterns. You know, check in with them each week or each session about how they're sleeping, if they're having strange dreams, how they feel when they wake up. If they're having a hard time sleeping, um, they can talk to their doctor about interventions if they have enough insurance coverage, they can go get a sleep study, which can be helpful. But it's also important for them to recognize that the sleep distress or the sleep problems um, will partially resolve, if not completely resolve, when their brain has healed, when their body has healed. Now, some people ha would have had t hard time sleeping even before that because they had crappy sleep hygiene or they've got trauma issues they haven't dealt with. But those are all things that we can probe about. Those are things that we can help with. With memory problems, encouraging them to be patient and kind to themselves, recognizing they're, they're recovering. And even though they're not using anymore, um, even though it's been some t a lot, maybe six months since they used, they still may have some cognitive difficulties because their brain has not completely restored that dopaminergic system. Therefore, if they need to remember something or they need to learn something, what can they do to facilitate that? I'm huge on encouraging people to make lists and notes, at least during this period. You know, I, I make lists and notes all the time. Not everybody loves doing that, but during this point in time, it can help people stay organized and remember things so they don't get frustrated.
encourage them to also uh, be mindful of how their memory and attentional abilities are improving over time, you know, encouraging them to reflect each week, you know, compared to the week before last, how was last week as far as remembering things, having uh, fogginess in their head, etc. They can keep a daily journal, it's ideal, even if it's a fill-in-the-blank worksheet, um, if they're willing, but if they're not, just retrospectively thinking about um, how things are improving, how their symptoms are improving each week to notice and embrace those baby steps forward. In terms of dizziness and problems with balance and delayed reflexes, this needs to be evaluated by a physician um, to make sure that there's not some other underlying physiological problem. But with all that being ruled out, encouraging them to identify what they can do to keep themselves safe. So holding on to railings when they're going up and down stairs. A lot of times people have postural hypotension. So when they get up really fast, they get really dizzy. So they may need to pay more attention to getting up more slowly so they don't get dizzy and fall down. But these are practical things. A lot of these things are very practical life skills, um, strategies that they can use in order to manage the post-acute withdrawal period and have their highest quality of life. When I do the pause group, we go through, I have these symptoms up on the board and we go through when I have people, everybody has a um, worksheet in front of them. And I have them identify, while they're in group, two strategies they can use to handle each one of these symptoms should it occur. Um, and, and that's a way that they can engage, you know, instead of just sitting through a lecture, you know, we're talking, you know, I'm t- asking them what works for you. So they're um, using kinesthetic Uh, learning strategies. They're using auditory learning strategies by hearing it and talking about it. And they're using visual learning strategies by writing it down. And they've got it written down. So if they are having memory challenges, they can go back and review it later. In terms of your neurotransmitters and receptors that are altered, Your endogenous opioids, the opioids that your body makes itself, um, reduces the amount of GABA released. Reduced GABA increases dopamine. So when we're not, um, when we're not as chill, you know, when we're more hyped up, when there's more glutamate, there's more dopamine, which makes sense because dopamine says, let's get motivated and let's go get it which is counterproductive to GABA, which says, let's just chill for a while. Um, Dopamine is the perseverance neurochemical and is also involved in energy and attention. Norepinephrine is responsible for attention and alertness, and glutamate is the main excitatory neurotransmitter. Serotonin interestingly enough, can have both stimulatory and calming influences. When it's too high, it can actually cause anxiety. When it's too low, 
it can contribute to depression. When it's just right, that Goldilocks hypothesis again, um, then it helps balance our moods. It actually acts in different ways in different parts of our body. Now, all of these neurotransmitters are intertwined. When, as I, as I mentioned earlier, for example, when dopamine and norep norepinephrine go up, um, serotonin also often goes up. Your cannabinoid receptors are also involved in regulating mood, memory, appetite, pain, cognition, and emotions. Your cannabinoid receptors, these are the ones that are, we have endogenous uh, cannabinoids, but your cannabinoid receptors are the ones that are activated by cannabis-based products or CBD-based products. Um, and those also alter the levels of all of your other, you know, big five neurotransmitters, GABA, uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, glutamate, and serotonin. Adenosine is a central nervous system neuromodulator that has specific receptors. We've talked a lot about adenosine before. Because when we go through our day, as our brain goes through its daily processes, adenosine builds up in the brain. Cortisol drops as adenosine goes up. As adenosine goes up, we start to feel what they euphemistically call sleep pressure. Um, so adenosine is a central nervous system modulator. When it binds to its receptors, neural activity slows down and you feel sleepy. It facilitates sleep, dilates the blood vessels, and helps ensure oxygenation of the blood of, of the brain during sleep. Caffeine and other stimulants act as an adenosine receptor antagonist. So your stimulants actually prevent adenosine from locking into those receptors to help you get sleepy and have good sleep. People who are abusing stimulants are keeping adenosine at bay when they're in their active addiction. People who are abusing um, depressants and, and opioids, when they stop using, guess what? All of those um, excitatory neurotransmitters are just, you know, chomping at the bit to get in there um, so that their normal uh, neurotransmitters actually displace the adenosine and keep them from getting uh, quali the quality sleep that they need. So we do want to recognize that it's not just serotonin or melatonin that contributes to sleep. There's a lot of other stuff. And adenosine is one of those which is directly um, counteracted by stimulants exogenous stimulants by stress, the HPA axis when it releases cortisol or glutamate, and by our excitatory neurotransmitters when they are too high in our system, uh, they will actually act to displace the adenosine. So people who were using a substance that typically slowed them down often have more problems with sleep later on than people who were um, abusing a substance or that or using for an extended period a, a substance that was stimulating, like ADHD medications. Um, 
even when taken as prescribed, if they're taken and the person is, you know, taking them over years, um, those are stimulant type medications. So when they quit taking that stimulant type medication, they may experience significant sleepiness for a period of time. Your nicotinic receptors more commonly have a modulatory role through modulation of release of all of those neurotransmitters. It's been characterized as an effective anti-pain target that functions through a non-opioid mechanism. Your cannabinoid receptors are the same. Uh, so when people are addicted to nicotine, they are stimulating these receptors. When they stop using nicotine, guess what? Whatever they were, you know, counteracting with the nicotinic receptors, it's going to be much more intense potentially in that um, post use during that withdrawal period. So if they were using it to count nicotine to counteract pain or anxiety, then when they quit using, instead of having, you know, just regular old run of the mill pain or anxiety, it's probably going to be intensified for a period of time. The developing brain is particularly vulnerable to the harmful effects of abuse, including cocaine, alcohol, and nicotine, which activate nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Disruption of the nicotine receptor development with early nicotine use may influence the function and pharmacology of the receptors and alter the release of reward-related re neurotransmitters, including acetylcholine, dopamine, GABA, serotonin, and glutamate. So people who start using nicotine products early in life before that brain is fully, you know, fully developed may actually alter the, the, the nicotinic receptor's ability to modulate the release of all of those different neurotransmitters. So let that sink in for a second. You know, it's amazing how powerful nicotine is as a drug and it's legal. Just thinking. So what do we want to do? And y'all know I love my mnemonic devices. And this one is Mr. Escaper. Um, we want to help people regulate the temperature of the bath. Remember I said um, earlier that when we start taking a substance, so, which is way more than what our body would naturally produce, our body ramps up its antagonist to meet that. So if we normally took in, you know, three boxes and we upped it to nine boxes, our body is going to amp up the counterbalancing neurotransmitter the same amount. When we decide, hey, we're not going to use that anymore, all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. But our brain takes a while to get the message. So it's kind of what we want to do is help the body balance the neurotransmitters like creating a warm bath. We don't want too much cold. We don't want too much hot, uh, too much slowing or too much um, excitable neurotransmitters. So we want to help them figure out how to regulate their bath based on their, their neurotransmitter bath based on their current state. So if they were, for example, um, using 
depressant type substances, things that slowed them down, then in this post-acute withdrawal period, they may have um, anxiety and irritability and agitation and sometimes spurts of really intense anxiety. So we want to help them figure out what can you do to help yourself calm down, to trigger your body, to convince your body to release more of those calming chemicals to help balance out what's going on. Um, if they are, were uh, using um, stimulants, then they may feel sleepy and depressed and lethargic. Again, we want to help them figure out how can you prompt the release of some of those excitatory neurochemicals so you can see color, so you can get excited about life, so you can get motivated. All of these can be tweaked by the person in order to um, affect their current condition. Meditation and breathing. Getting focused, meditation and slow breathing can help slow down the um, heart rate and trigger the rest and digest. It can increase oxygenation, which can also increase energy levels. You know, it can help people feel more clear headed, so to speak. They can meditate on a calming scene or they can meditate and think about something that is truly exciting, something they think about and they're like, oh my gosh, that is so amazing. Uh, so they can trigger the release of potentially dopamine and some of those positive neurochemicals through meditation. Relationships with social supports can help regulate that temperature. Um, I think most of us have some friends that are just, they are gangbusters, go gangbusters all the time. They're always wanting to go to the park, go out to eat, go do this, go do that. They're the ones that are going to drag you out of your house and go, let's have some fun. Um, and they can be really helpful to get people moving. And sometimes that's all it takes is for them to get moving in order to get that dopamine flowing a little bit. Other friends are the ones that are just really chill and calm and, you know, let's just sit here and stare at the bonfire for a while. Knowing who those social supports are, having a plan that includes relationships, includes people that are helpful to you, um, regardless of whether you feel like you're running too hot or too cold one day, uh, can be helpful. Exercise. Increases dopamine levels, increases serotonin levels, increases endorphin levels. So all of these things are things that tend to be low, especially in people who are recovering from addictive behaviors, addictive substances, or long-time use of prescription medications that have psychotropic effects. So exercise is good. Sleep. Everybody needs sleep. The brain does a lot of repair during sleep. And as we talked about earlier, people who were using um, stimulants probably aren't going to have a whole lot of problem with sleep um, or feeling sleepy. They may have more difficulty waking up, but they, may, they still may not be getting quality sleep. So we want to encourage them to keep a sleep diary. We want to encourage them to communicate with the other people on the multi multidisciplinary team if they need assistance getting 
adequate quality restorative sleep. On that note, remember that sleep apnea keeps people from getting that adequate quality restorative sleep. So if they have apnea, that's something we do need to make a referral for. Circadian rhythm stabilization is also important, and that's different from sleep. Sleep is one of the things that our circadian rhythms trigger, but circadian rhythms also trigger your hunger, your satiation, when you want to sleep, it's involved in your libido, it's involved in your immune system. Circadian rhythms are actually stabilized not only by the level of light, you know, when it's bright out, our brain receives through, through the pineal gland that we're supposed to be awake. When it is dim, it, our brain gets the message that, hey, it's time to start, you know, slowing down and winding down. But light is only part of it. It's also activities, temperature, and socialization level. So our brain takes information from all of those things and says either it's time to be awake or it's time to be, be asleep. And, and that is important for people to recognize that they need to be cool. They need to be calm. They need to be collected. Uh, sorry. Um, in order to help regulate those circadian rhythms. So there's a lot more to circadian rhythm stabilization and sleep than, than just light levels. Awareness and mindfulness is huge. As we mentioned earlier in the symptoms, there are days when people may feel depressed. There's days when they may feel irritable. There's days when they may feel anxious. There's days when they may not feel at all. Um, and somehow I feel like a Dr. Seuss book would fit with that. But um, in any event, uh, it is important. It is crucial. I can't underscore enough uh, the importance of mindfulness of the moment so people can recognize how they're feeling, their feelings, thoughts, wants, and needs in the moment, both physical and emotional, cognitive, you know, there's lots of stuff. So it's important for people to start checking in with themselves. If they're recovering from addictive behaviors, again, sex addiction, gambling, or substances, doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of times during their addiction, they were probably just oblivious, kind of numb. And during this time is going to be a huge change and they're going to have to have some targets, some cues to remind them to regularly check in with themselves. And for some of, uh, some of our clients, even when they check in with themselves, they may not get any reading because they're alexthymic, because they've never learned to label their emotions, because they may just, you know, kind of be numb all over. So we want to help them develop strategies to become more mindful and aware of what they need in the moment and recognize that it's going to fluctuate, not necessarily even on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes it's an hour-to-hour -hour basis. Pleasurable activities are essential. Pleasurable activities promote dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins. Doing something every day, even if it's just listening to a really funny comedian, watching an adorable video on YouTube, something that makes them happy or could make them happy, has made them happy in the past, uh, is important. Engaging in those things in order to prime those dopamine 
uh, systems. Eating healthfully is important. They don't have to go, you know, crazy on it, but trying to eat colorfully and reducing the amount of caffeine and processed, highly processed foods, you know, refined sugars and things, and uh, increasing the amount of water they drink to help flush those toxins out of their body can be super helpful. And finally, relaxation. Everybody, well, most everybody, probably needs to uh, set aside time each day to relax. In early recovery or in that first year or two of recovery, a lot of times people have a lot of guilt about stuff that they did or stuff that they should have done or this or that, and they may actually schedule themselves too much. So there's no time for relaxation. They actually just kind of create a whole other way of staying numb and mindless. So it's important to encourage people to find time to schedule in relaxation. So Mr. Escaper stands for meditation, relationships, exercise, sleep, circadian rhythms, awareness, of the present moment. Pleasure. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome or uh, is an expected issue for at least the first year as the brain and the body recover. Pause symptoms are caused by imbalances in the brain's neurotransmitters. It's really important that people understand not only the client themselves, but their loved ones and even other counselors and staff in, in treatment centers understand that some of the emotional ability, some of the exhaustion, some of the symptoms of that may seem like either resistance or relapse may be actual, actually symptoms the person's experiencing caused by rapid fluctuations in their neurotransmitters. Now, this isn't always the case. Uh, you know, I worked in residential addictions treatment for uh, 14 years, and sometimes people try to, you know, work the system. But there's also, you know, the occasion for the person who's been, um, abusing cocaine for 15 years, you know, in that first 60 days after detox, yeah, they may actually need to sleep more. It's not that they're trying to be resistant. They just need sleep. And that adenosine is just pouring in. Um, for people who have been uh, abusing benzodiazepines or opioids, their anxiety levels may go through the roof and they may be more irritable and have difficulty focusing in, uh, in group or in session. And, and it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily something that is a, um, underlying pathology, so to speak, that, you know, like AD, ADHD or something, it very well may be a physiological and relatively temporary physiological adjustment, um, that is happening as a result of substance use and now withdrawal. In early recovery, it's not helpful or realistic to ignore or minimize pause symptoms. The body is often telling the person what is needed, which is why um, mindfulness is so important. So the person can articulate 
what is needed and understand and try to respond to the best of their ability. I mean, you know, if they're back at work 40 hours a week and at two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, I could lay down and go to sleep for four hours. You know, that ain't going to happen. But thinking about what are some reasonable accommodations the person can make in their schedule, uh, if they are feeling sleepy frequently, can be a big help, you know, helping them figure out how to work with the symptoms they're experiencing to maximize their quality of life. The goal during this period should be to minimize stress, just like when recovering from any other illnesses. Let's try to not add extra stress on the body, um, emotional or excessive physical stress. It's important to integrate what the body is saying with the recovery process. For example, sleep is important, but sleeping all day is going to throw those circadian rhythms out of whack and cause poor sleep all the time. Uh, so we need to find that happy medium, that Goldilocks principle for all of our basic um, activities of daily living. Are there any questions? I want to re-emphasize the fact that, you know, a lot of people in who go through addiction treatment um, are going to often, almost always, experience pause to a certain extent. And it can come in fits and spurts. They may have like a month or even three months where they're feeling great. And then all of a sudden one morning they wake up and they're having cravings and they're irritable. And that's okay. You know, helping them recognize that what we're aiming for is for those spurts to be less intense, fewer, and further between. Yes, this can apply to behavioral addictions as well, because when people engage in something like gambling or pornography use or, or sex, it increases dopamine and norepinephrine levels way higher than they would, quote, normally be, um, be raised. When it happens, you know, once in a while, somebody decides to go to Las Vegas for the weekend or even for a week on vacation, that's not a big deal. But when it is ongoing for months or years and the brain is constantly being bombarded by those extra high levels, those surges of dopamine and, and glutamate and norepinephrine, then the body starts actually making physiological alterations to the brain. Um, in terms of psychotropics, um, psychotropics are an interesting thing. Yes, we do a lot of times see people develop uh, tolerance to psychotropics. However, a lot of times they're taking those psychotropics because there was an imbalance to begin with. Now, I like to really dig deeper and say, okay, well, if your serotonin was low or your norepinephrine was low, what's causing that instead of just, you know, turning up the water pressure, turning up the power, um, I want to find out what's actually causing it to be low physiologically or cognitively or both. Um, but, you know, some people w may have dysfunctional 
um, neurotransmitter systems that will need to forever have the supplementation. Um, so psychotropics, you know, are really uh, a sticky wicket for a lot of people. Everybody have an absolutely positively fabulous weekend and I will see you on Tuesday.